Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are in verse 26 today. We're going to be studying through verse 31. Paul's been tackling the first major issue in Corinth. There are many issues in Corinth, but the first one that he chooses to deal with is the issue of division. And he's digging into the fact that much of that division that the Corinthians are stumbling through stems from the way that the church themselves view themselves and their leaders. As we approach the conclusion of the chapter, Paul's building for his friends in Corinth a, a more responsible perspective on wisdom. He has shown the weakness of worldly wisdom, and now he invites the Corinthians to consider their own ability to think. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31 says this, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Would you please bow your heads in prayer with me as we prepare our hearts to, to go through this passage verse by verse. Lord God, we humbly come before you thankful for what you provide for us. Your word has the ability to bring about many outcomes in our hearts as we read it and as we study it. It awakens us. It helps us to not be ignorant to the things of God. It helps us to see your nature and your character and your will being poured out in the world. It can move us. It can motivate us. It can encourage us. But Father, there are also times when it needs to humble us, when it needs to bring us low. And so I do ask, Lord God, that you would prepare us for that process and that we would not allow our, our human sinful heart to grow embittered when you confront us with the things in our heart that need to change, Lord, when you place us next to the image of Christ and we can see so plainly how different we are than Jesus. Instead of being bitter about that difference, Lord God, help us to long to be more like Christ is. I pray, Father, that we would not be self-absorbed or self-deceived or self-destructive today, that we would push away your word but that we would want what is best for our own heart and soul, God, that we would embrace this word which is eternal and perfect and good and is able to enact transformation in our minds and our hearts. So may we fix our attention on Christ today, the object of our faith, the pinnacle of our affections, God. We pray that you would help Christ shine brightly through the service and the preaching of the word and in our understanding and application of it as well. And we lift up all these words in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. In 121, which we looked at last week, the Apostle Paul asked where the top thinkers were in the world. In other words, he was challenging those outside of the church, um, asking where their solutions were for life. The conclusion was this. Those great thinkers, those worldly wise, were not in Christ. They were not able to come to know the goodness and greatness of the Lord God. Verse 25 here takes that concept and it presses it a bit further. Now Paul turns his thinking 
from those of the secular world outside of the church towards those who are inside of the church. He issues a careful challenge to those who belong to Christ in Corinth. It's a gentle exposure of of the kinds of people that God has chosen to save there in that city. Essentially, what Paul is saying is this. Look around you, church. Look at the population in Corinth that has come to trust in Jesus Christ. Your fellowship is not filled with those the world would herald as wise and mighty in thinking. Your membership is not filled with scribes and academics. The church is not brimming with mighty men of speech who can convince and persuade and confound. That's not what makes up your membership. Now may it be said of the Apostle Paul that he was absolutely not a flatterer. He was not an ear tickler who just told the people what they wanted to hear so that they would like him more. That was not his forte. But neither is Paul being obnoxious here. His goal is not to offend the church in Corinth or make them feel insignificant. He's not dogging on them right now. His goal is to prevent them from gazing into the mirror and become enamored with themselves when they should be gazing at Jesus Christ and marveling at their Savior instead. Note the three characteristics that he mentions in in this warning. He says, there are not many wise among you. Again, this is from the Greek word Sophia, which we talked about a week or two ago. It's the same root word from which we get the word philosopher. It means one who is a friend to knowledge, one that was exceptional in thinking. And so when he says that there were not many wise among you, he's, he's clarifying there that there were not too many valedictorians who came to know Jesus Christ under the ministry that he and the other uh, apostles established there in that city. Now, Paul adds a clause to help sp- specify what he means. And I don't want us to miss this. He says, not many wise according to the flesh. Do You know what that means? We talked about last week how there's a difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. It's important to to note this. There are different kinds of wisdom, aren't there? I mean, some people seem to be street smart. Other people seem to be book smart. Some people are really wise regarding money and numbers. Other people are really wise when it comes to the emotions of man. So there are different kinds of smart. He's not telling the Corinthians that they're a bunch of dummies. He's saying that from the perspective of of those who lean on worldly wisdom rather than on godly wisdom, that the Corinthians were nothing special. The structure of the sentence indicates here that Paul intended to clarify with this clause all three characteristics, that they are not worldly wise, that they are not worldly powerful, and that they are not of noble birth when it comes to the world's opinions. So this church is not worldly wise. They are not many powerful among them either. And then this refers to the power of influence. It's not talking about their ability to bench press. Uh, It is talking about their ability to enact change and influence on the people around them. The church is not a social juggernaut. They didn't hold a tremendous amount of clout in the Corinthian culture. Again, this is according to worldly standards. So the church is not filled with particularly persuasive people who were well-connected, who could pull strings, who had a strong voice in the society that they lived in, who were listened to and respected and whose endorsement meant something. There have been periods in America's history when Christians, particularly pastors of Christian churches, had much more power in their cultures. Presidents cared about what 
ministers had to say. Some even recognized their need for wisdom from God's word in order to do their jobs well. But our culture has become so secularized that it's moved far from that. Not to say that every single president doesn't have some pastor that they call their wise counsel. But today that's much more so for the sake of trying to gain the conservative vote than it is to seek the actual wisdom of God. So Paul is telling the Corinthians there that look at the people of your church. There's not a whole lot of movers and shakers here who are going to persuade hundreds and thousands of people to come to the Lord. There's, there's just not that much influence as far as the worldly perspective goes. And then he says, there are also not many of noble birth. That's a very tricky one because all Christians have experienced a second birth, haven't they? And that second birth, if you have put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, that second birth is extremely noble. The fact that you are now of the bloodline of Christ because you have been adopted into the family means that you are of extremely noble birth, more so than being a Kennedy or, or being one of, of the nobility in England. You are from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are his son or his daughter. But according to the worldly standards, we're just normal people. Or worse, we are often the leftovers of society. The sinners, the failures, the poor, the sick, those who see their weakness, those who are obviously vulnerable to the world. These are the people that comprised the church in Corinth, and they are the kinds of people that God is known for redeeming and making his own. It's not that a wise or powerful or noble man cannot be saved. That's not what Paul is saying here. In the 19th chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus was speaking to his disciples and a young man came up and began to speak to him and engage him on matters of heaven. And in this passage, he reveals that it is more difficult for some to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is for others. He says in Matthew 19, verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So God is not saying that if you've got 150 IQ, you're doomed and there's no chance God's going to save you. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that if you come from a wealthy, influential family, then you've been disqualified from the eternal family. What he is saying here is that it is more difficult in life for one who comes from a background of worldly nobility and worldly wisdom and worldly power to see their need for Christ. But Christ does indeed work through those obstacles and brings many through the eye of the needle. There will not be as many people saved who belong to these categories which are so highly regarded from man's perspective. This indicates that when it comes to salvation, these traits are of no advantage to you. In fact, they may be a disadvantage to you. If you think you may be one of these worldly wise, if, if you think of yourself as a Christian today, you've confessed Christ and you're extremely intelligent and you come from an influential family and you have the ability to sway, persuade others or maybe you're very powerful 
and you've been saved, then be especially grateful that God brought you into his family. Had he not done that, then your worldly excellence would have been used by God to show the greater excellency of Jesus Christ as he humbled you and showed you your need for Jesus. God often chooses to save that which the world would otherwise cast aside. He chooses the spiritually disadvantaged. We see that described to us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So at first, that sounds like he's encouraging the church, it, 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 churches in Asia Minor, which he is. But notice the words that he uses here. You are now, but you were not. He brought you out of a darkness to get you there. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And as Peter preaches to those churches in Asia Minor, he knows that many of the people who make up those congregations aren't from a Jewish background. They didn't have the spiritual advantage of knowing God's law growing up. And so many of those believers there in those churches were of a very unspiritual background or a toxically, wrongly spiritual background. And so he says, you are not a people. You are far from the grace of God. And yet look what God has done in bringing you near to him. He has poured out his grace and his mercy on you even though you didn't have spiritual attributes that were praiseworthy, even though you didn't have a heritage in God's work in the world. You were not a people, and yet he has made you a people. They are a chosen race, he says. Regardless of their genetic race, regardless of the fact that they were not Jewish, they are now a royal priesthood, regardless of what tribe they came from or whether they came from a tribe in the first place. They are a holy nation, regardless of where they hailed from originally. They are a people of God's own possession, regardless of the fact that they were once sinners and rebels to that very God who now calls them his citizens in his kingdom. So God chooses the spiritually disadvantaged. God is not afraid to raise these spiritually disadvantaged people to the highest service once he has redeemed them. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul remarks, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Think about the wretchedness of Paul before he was interrupted on the road to Damascus. He is a man who in every sense of the word was an enemy of the church, desired to put believers to death or imprison them so their influence could be squelched. He wanted to erase the way from the planet. He wanted to get rid of Christianity entirely. And this is the man that God chooses to be one of his foremost missionaries in the world. Consider all the great work that God has done through this Apostle Paul. Consider that we are studying his very inspired words today because God chose to use him as a mouthpiece for eternal truth. Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners. What an irony that God would commission this man to such a great honor. Who in worldly wisdom would ever entrust their enemy to be one of their prime uh, agents in, in, in bringing their will to come to pass. That paradox applies beyond the leaders of the way. God is willing to impart blessing on those that the world would not consider blessed. Turn with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to read this whole section, but I want you to have your eyes on it with your Bible right in front of you. 
This, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. This is where God is using Christ to describe what a Christian looks like. And we see this passage of Scripture, uh, direction from Christ to His disciples about what following after Him is going to feel like, how it's going to manifest in their obedience to Him. And so in Matthew chapter 5, we see those who are blessed. This is called the Beatitudes. And we hear that blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are mighty in spirit. Blessed are those who are powerful in spiritual things. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ironically, their, their poorness, their poverty in spiritual things, God will use that to help them see how much they need the riches of Christ. And by trusting Jesus, theirs will become the kingdom of heaven. It will be taken out of the hands of those who seem to the world to be spiritually mighty, and it will be put into the hands of the humble. Blessed are those who mourn, not those who rejoice because all theirs have been protected. Blessed are those who mourn, who experience loss, those who have less than others, those who give up what they do have to supply the needs of others. Blessed are those who mourn. God will be the one who comforts them. They won't be comforted by their earthly relationships or the, the finances that they have that are security to them or by their job or their standing in the community. They'll be comforted by the riches of Christ Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not those who are fat with righteousness, not those who abound in the things that, that, that are signified in the law of Moses, but rather those who desire to be more like the Lord God who has called them and given them this law. And so again and again and again, Jesus describes those who are the wretched of the world, those who are the downtrodden, those who are the disadvantaged. And he says, blessed are you, for you have the one thing that matters, a faith in the Savior. The blessed ones are not who we would think they are, are they, friends? The Lord uses simple, humble church folk to confound the worldly wise and to make them question the shaky security that they think their wisdom in this world will give to them. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this is Paul speaking again, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That word unsearchable is important because last week we learned that the worldly wisdom that most people try to use to seek God will never get them there. He is unsearchable, right? But Paul has been called to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God not only blesses the church, but then he uses that humble and simple church to profoundly display the glories of God to those who could never understand it apart from Christ. Even leaders in the world and even in heavenly places can't understand what you know. It reminds me of in, in the book of Hebrews when the writer of Hebrews tells the church that, that God has revealed to them things into which angels wish they could look. So God has given us a wisdom far beyond the worldly intelligent. And God intends to use this humble church to reveal himself to this proud world. So Christianity is not a rich man's club. This isn't an academic inner circle. It's not an exclusive clique of successful and enviable people. 
It is a group of humble people gathered together by the grace of God, given a common identity in the Holy Spirit. When I was in college, I, I got connected with some friends who served the Lord in a ministry called Young Life. And, um, and that Young Life's done some really great things, but I remember starting to get involved with them, and there was something about their strategy at reaching children and young people that I didn't really agree with. Young Life goes into campuses of schools and creates Bible clubs there and then does great activities and gets young people excited about Christ. And then the idea is to hopefully connect them to a church body where they can become saved and they can trust the Lord and grow in discipleship. Unfortunately, what I saw in their strategy of reaching people is that their technique was in very much so the opposition to what we're learning today. Young Life trained its leaders to, to get onto the campus and try to connect with the most influential students you can. Find the, the captain of the football, uh, football team, the, the quarterback. Find him. Lead him to Christ. And then since he's influential, other people will hear, they'll consider, and they'll turn to Christ. Go find that, that uh, person who's, who's the uh, president of the, uh, of, of the student association, the person who's got influence and, and can share the, the, the gospel with other people, and other people will listen to them. Find them and win them to Christ. They are point people. And I always remember thinking of that and trying to reconcile that with this idea that God goes after the lowly. He goes after the ones that you would not expect much of. It didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time. And then add that to there was often a negligence in actually connecting them to church bodies. And it just seemed like Young Life was an organization that didn't accomplish kingdom purposes like it should. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise and the powerful and the noble. He's being contrary to conventional wisdom to highlight his superior wisdom and to challenge those who think much of themselves to experience a humbling for their own good. And why does he do it? Verse 29, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. This unmerited favor that God pours out on his people draws attention to a fundamental sin that is so obvious in us. Our desperate need for attention and approval by others. Let me give you some examples of this. Look around today and it doesn't, you can see it all over the place, this compulsion that people have to become internet famous. They want to do something remarkable that everyone will see and they watch as their likes climb, as people notice them as they are affirmed by others and as they spread the word about this interesting thing that they did or this creative thing that they made or this accomplishment. Why are we so compelled to have the praise and the acceptance of other people? Other people who are probably more fixated on their own likes growing than on whatever you're doing on your page when they give you their like. It's evidence of the inherent pride in us that tries to poison our relationship with this God whom we cannot come to unless we come humbly. There is an obsession in our culture with celebrities. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen articles about what so-and-so is going to vote for this November. Why do we look to actors and actresses who make a living out of convincing us there's something that they're not and expect them to give us advice in politics or in philosophy, or in how to live our lives properly. And yet, because they have notoriety, because they are well-received by the people of the world, we think their opinion carries more power. We see evidence of it when people 
casually take every opportunity to mention the great things that they have accomplished or the influential and powerful people that they know and are connected to. People are a proud, proud creature. And yet God desires to give us a new heart, a different heart, because pride separates us from God and from each other. It causes us to boast in ourselves and to draw worshipful love and affection away from the one subject who deserves it, and that is Jesus Christ. So humility is a mark of a changed heart. Humility positions us for a right relationship with the Son of God. Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30 speaks of this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who is Christ favoring in this passage? Come to me, because I have hidden these things from the wise, the worldly wise, from the understanding and who is we revealed them to? To those who are like little children. To those who can see their dependence upon God and their need for Him. How does God render foolish the wisdom of the world? How does He defeat men's discernment, as we spoke about last week? By withholding Himself from the proud. By letting those who feel like they can live apart from God give it their best shot. And as they live apart from God and they think that their worldly wisdom is securing them, they eventually find that it is no security whatsoever. Even if their life seems well-ordered and comfortable and enviable to the rest of the world, if they reach the end of their journey here and they don't have a right relationship with God through Christ, then what worldly good has their wisdom done them? A man cannot take all that he has earned in this world with him into the next life. He would lose his soul apart from Christ. There is a necessary humility in those who come to Jesus, and it is a foreign humility. It is not a humility that is innate in us. Think about this, okay? What we're not saying here this morning is that all the people of the world, the wise people are not the one God likes the most and will save. He looks for the ones that are humble. He finds them and saves them. That's not what we're saying here today. The humility that we need for our pride to be crushed and for us to be able to stand before the Lord God, atoned for by Jesus, is a foreign humility. Do you remember the metaphor of the potter and the clay that Paul alluded to when he quoted Isaiah 29 a week ago? He talked about how the people of Israel had gotten everything upside down, that the, the clay was telling the potter what to do, criticizing the Lord God for not letting them be what they wanted to be. They were supposed to be the clay, malleable and shapeable, in the hands of the skillful artist God, Yahweh. But they wanted to make decisions for themselves. They wanted to make those choices that could only be left up to the potter. They wanted to decide what they would become. They were refusing to yield to God's skillful hands. Now I want us to think about the properties of clay for a second. Once it has been 
left on the shelf for a long time, what happens to clay? If you're a child, then you hate Play-Doh for this very reason, because it turns hard. It becomes useless. And if it's been shoved into your carpet, like kids like to do, then you're never getting it out again. It'll be there till the rapture. <laughs> if a clay object is fired in a kiln, it becomes even harder than if left on the shelf. And when clay stops being soft and shapeable, then it is no good in the hands of the artist. It is only through the miraculous working of the third person of the Trinity that such hardened hearts can be made moldable once again. We need a foreign humility. We need God to grant us that which we do not possess in order to draw near to the Lord God. The humility imparted by the Holy Spirit is in many ways like the humility of a child. A child who cannot pretend to really be king or queen because they can't even reach the doorknob. They can't provide for themselves. And so their weakness is obvious, whereas adults, our weakness often is not. And so the Holy Spirit brings us back to that state of need. A child being keenly aware of their limits learns to trust the one that they identify as greater, as older, as more wise, so too must we trust in the one who is over us, the Lord God. A Christian must embrace a similar positional station as a child. While the discussion has been particularly directed at wisdom so far, this paradox extends beyond the things of the mind. It holds true for other characteristics that might breed pride in a human being as well. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So just because you might be influential or powerful, you might be of perfect health while others are not, you might have abilities in your body that other people don't possess, God chooses the weak to shame those who seem to be able to handle it on their own. God chooses what is low and despised in the world to shame the esteemed. He lifts up the one who is downtrodden. He brings them to a higher station, whereas the one who is worldly esteemed often comes to little in the eyes in the kingdom of God. God chose the things that are not to bring, about, uh, bring to nothing the things that are. This harkens back to Genesis language. Remember when God created, how did he create? By just simply speaking. And from nothing, something came. That is the power that only God possesses. And so man comes along and thinks that he can make something out of what he is. But apart from God, he really has no ability to create. He can only use what God has already created. We are utterly dependent upon this God who is our creator. And so God humbles those who think they're something, who think they are strong, who think they are esteemed. Why does God do all of this? So that no human being might boast about himself in the presence of God. Now, boasting, you might notice, is not absolutely forbidden here. Paul doesn't just put a moratorium on all boasting. Worship, in many ways, is boasting. It is boasting in the right ways about the right object. It's identifying those characteristics in God which are infinitely praiseworthy and giving Him unashamed glory and thanksgiving for those characteristics. As a human being, you're designed to boast. You were made to do this. But the fall of Adam has corrupted our ability to boast in appropriate ways. 
So we don't need to abandon boasting. We need boundaries for our boasting. We need to understand how to boast properly. We need to reestablish this proper mentality about how we might praise and worship the one who deserves to be praised and worshiped. God has to restrain our minds to think more clearly about ourselves and more highly about our Savior, that we might enjoy the one who is so superior to us without grieving him, without being envious of him, without feeling compelled to surpass him. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ today? Don't ever let your mind, if you're a Christian, think, I'm so glad I was smart enough to understand my need for Jesus. You know, I'm not the brightest guy in the room, but at least I got that right. At least I was smart enough to understand my need for Jesus. Friend, I don't mean to offend you, but you were not. Neither was I. Your wisdom was a worldly wisdom before God drew you to himself and replaced it with a more godly wisdom. Before he gave you a faith that was not your own, you were worldly wise and you didn't and couldn't understand the things of eternity. When you think that way, when you let your mind think, I'm so glad I was smart enough to understand my need for Jesus, you're saying something else at the same time. You're saying, I don't understand how all these people be, could be so foolish to reject Jesus. Why aren't they smart enough to see what I see? And this is what happens with you and them in your mind. You become greater than them. You become proud of yourself in opposition to them. So friends, we must be humble in the ways that we think about even our own wisdom, lest the enemy plant tares of pride among the seeds of the gospel in our heart. Christian, you were not smart enough to see it either. It is only the work in God that has changed that. You were given a wisdom that is better than your own. Your mind has been changed. And because God chose to save you, you are saved today. You belong to him. Remember the words of Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. Most of us are familiar with this. Many can say it from heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast in what? In their own works, in the things that they have done. So when God saves you, it's because he elected to pour out his grace upon you. He chose you. And the fact that it was him sparing you from judgment means that it is not a result of your works. It is not the result of your superior intellect. And therefore, you cannot take credit for that salvation. You cannot boast in yourself. And since your salvation begins and ends with Him, how can you brag about it? It's not a function of your hard work and clever thinking. It is to His glory alone. We might, we might do well, I think, to focus on the tense of the verbs that He uses here. Not many of you were wise. Did you notice that? Past tense. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble descent. What does that mean? It means that that has now changed. You are in Christ now, and though you were not wise or powerful or of noble descent before, God has supplied in you everything that you lack. In Him, you have what you need. God saves fools, but He doesn't leave them foolish. He exposes the folly of human wisdom before his people. He replaces that inferior wisdom with a greater wisdom that comes from him. 
He imparts to us a foreign wisdom to go with our foreign humility. And so 1 Corinthians 4.8 says, Already you have all that you want. This is what Paul's going to eventually get to in this letter. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share this rule with you. Paul eventually wants these Corinthians to understand that though they are fighting with each other, trying to be better than one another, they don't need to do that. They all have everything that they need in Christ. They are all wise and rich and influential in the right spiritual ways. Not because of anything that they have done, but because of everything that Christ is. There is one more concluding point which includes a necessary response in faith. And that's found in verses 30, 31 of today's text. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see the boundaries that he's forming around boasting. Boasting is not to be ejected and and abolished from our lives, but we are to boast properly. Boasting in the one who has given us what we could not get for ourselves. Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom here. He is The Sophia of God, that is the word in the Greek used there, that that knowledge of God. In other places, he's called the Logos of God, the spoken wisdom of God. And through the wise will of God, salvation comes to his people. That salvation, inconceivable to the corrupt human mind, apart from a radical rebirth that he enacts in us, that salvation results in three important developments in believers. It results in the believer's righteousness. Because of what Christ did for us, because he was willing to come to earth and take on flesh, because he was able to live according to every law that God had given mankind, he did what Adam could not do, what Adam failed to do, because that perfect life that deserved glory was instead crucified to death on a cross for us, because Jesus was willing to suffer in our place, we have a righteousness that is not our own. We are justified and declared holy and righteous before God. Our sin is done away with and we are made guilt-free. Because Christ is the wisdom of God and is enacting and manifesting His will in the world, that results in the believer's sanctification. Not just our righteousness, but our ongoing holiness that is being developed by the Lord God. We have a new heart. And new behaviors flow out of this new heart. We can behave in a way that matches the ways of God. And we increase in that holy behavior as God brings us... increased maturity and understanding as the mystery is revealed more and more to us over time. It results in a third thing, in the believer's redemption. The word redemption is a relationship word. We are brought near once again to the God that we pushed away, to the God whom we spoiled our relationship with because of our pride. Christ overcomes that and reconciles us near to him once again. Anything good that you have, is gifted to you by the Lord God. And therefore, we cannot justify boasting in ourselves. There's no way we can do it. Whenever I claim glory for myself, I am lying. I am lying. I am telling a half-truth and leaving out the most important part of the, the truth, the half that matters. If I do something good, it's because God has done something good in me. But if I take credit for it myself, I'm cutting Him out of the equation. Christ deserves the glory, not me. 
Hardly a positive praise for ourselves should spring from our lips if it is not used as an occasion to tell the world that every good thing in me came from Christ and from His holiness. We don't have to be falsely humble, pretending like there is no good thing in us. Some people are in the habit of doing that. They lie whenever you try to thank them for something or compliment them about something God is doing in their lives. They say, oh, I'm not gifted. I, I don't have any praiseworthy abilities. I'm nothing special. But that rings especially hollow when God has clearly gifted that person and blessed them with spiritual blessings from heavenly places. <clears throat> you can be honest about your abilities. But be fully honest. When somebody compliments you and thanks you for what you are and what God has made you to be, say, I am so grateful for the grace of God in my life. Apart from him, I would be a fool. Apart from him, nothing I said would matter. I'm so grateful that I've been able to bless you today, but know very well that I wouldn't be able to if Christ had not shown his favor to me. So let people bless you with a compliment and then bless God with the true glory because he's the one who deserves it. Are you good at something? When someone praises you for it, tell them where it came from. Pass the glory on the, to the one who truly deserves it. But don't, don't deny that God is doing good things in you or you bury the glory of God rather than more magnifying it. Be thankful that he hasn't left you as he found you. And be willing to be honest about the broken state that he found you in. When somebody says something nice about you, say, I'm so glad I'm not what I used to be. I'm so glad that God has brought me out of my sin, that he gave me a repentant heart. Be willing to show that you've not always been this together, that you've not always been this humble and this patient, but that Christ's work in you has brought about this change. Even a godly biblical leader can be viewed in the wrong ways, can't they? The Corinthians are proving this to us. Apollos and Paul and Peter, they didn't want the church in Corinth separated under their, under their leadership. That was not their desire. Every godly leader was a sinner just like you and would still be one if it were not for the intervention of Jesus Christ. Could one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, could he preach eternal truth if you took the word of God away from him? No. If you took the word of God away from Alistair Begg, he would be a fancy accent, Scottish man. Listen to his sermons. He's a great preacher. Would Richard Baxter, famous Puritan minister, a magnificent shepherd of people, would he be able to minister to such a big flock? Would he have been able to say so many perfect words of comfort? Would he have been able to mend the broken hearts of his people if the Spirit was not supplying him with the wisdom that he needed? No. He would have never accomplished the things that he accomplished on his own strength. Could Pastor John MacArthur, Grace Church, Hope to stand steadfast against the eroding winds of chains that are bombarding the church today if it were not for the foundation of Christ that his feet were planted on firmly. Forget about it. He wouldn't be able to do what he's doing right now if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. Whatever you like best about your favorite Christian is more accurately what you like about Jesus. We must give up this worldly habit of boasting in ourselves for the sake of ourselves. And the second thing that this reveals in us is that we cannot neglect to boast in the one who gave us gifts. This is the other half of the boundary. Don't boast in yourself, but you need to boast in Christ. You have a responsibility, Christian, to exalt and lift up the God who has chosen you despite the fact that you are unworthy. Praise his name. It is what you will be doing for eternity in heaven. Why wait until then? Boast in him now. It shouldn't be hard. 
Consider the works of his hands. You have an infinite reserve of reasons to brag of the mercy and the power and the creativity of our creator, of the wonder of God, of the beauty of the one that you serve. Boast about him. Do not be silent. Do not cower in fear, worried that others will not agree with you about this God. God is praiseworthy because he is, not because others agree with him. This is not democracy. God is God. Boast in him. Lift up his name with thanksgiving. God is not just generically good. He has been good specifically to you, hasn't he? Share the story of how he redeemed you. Boast in the power that he has shown over your personal sin. Declare the trustworthy things of his word. And do not be ashamed to show people what he has shown to you. May your songs of praise be more than just positive, encouraging music. Let them be transcendent and true. Sing songs that glorify the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Songs that speak of His detail in nature, not just in vague brushes, but, but in details. Talk about His works and His character and His mighty promises, His beautiful covenants. Let your worship exalt the living Christ. So many Christians I know get bogged down in the mire of what is wrong in their lives. What a difference it would make for them if they were simply willing to spend more of their time declaring the excellencies of their king and remembering how good he is and how much he loves them rather than worrying about what he has not yet accomplished in their lives. The greatest antidepressant is putting our eyes on Christ, taking them off of ourselves and realizing, wow, I'm loved by the greatest being to ever love and I am loved perfectly by him. The Jews demanded a sign. The Greeks demanded wisdom. But the man who is being saved by God realizes he has no right to demand anything from his creator. He realizes, too, that God could demand man's undoing. For we have sinned grievously against him. But in mercy, God has chosen to use the weak things of the world to shame the wise. So rather than demand anything of God. We rejoice that all that God demands for justice is satisfied in his son Jesus, satisfied in full, and that's so on our behalf. Would you bow with me as we pray? There is no one like you, Yahweh. No one can think like you think. Your omniscience takes our breath away. Father God, there is no one who can do what you do. Your power is unmatched in the universe. There is nothing that can oppose you or slow you down or change your mind. Lord God, you are everywhere. We cannot flee from you, Lord. You are here with us now. You will be with us always. Lord God, let us boast of your excellencies. Father God, we know that one of the, the great failings of man's heart since Adam has been this desire to exalt, exalt ourselves. And so we come before you with a request today, Lord, that you would give us this foreign humility, that you would help us to be low before you. Father, because it is in this right understanding of our own heart and our dependence upon you that we begin to find ourselves being lifted up in Christ. I pray, Lord God, that you exalt yourself through our lives, that you would not leave us 
in the crushed state that we are in, but Father, that you would bring us near to you. We trust your word is true. You are preparing a place for us and you will return for your church. But God, we are so very grateful that we have found a home in you even now. So Lord God, may you be ever on our lips, the boast of our hearts, the one thing that we brag about, Lord God, the works of our precious Savior. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.